To ship, of course. It's time again for Build Engineering DevOps, Release Management, and everything between. It's The Ship Show. I'm your host, Paul Reed, Sober Build Eng on Twitter, and at SoberBuildEngineer.com, who's with me now that it's daylight outside past three in the afternoon. This is Sasha at Sasha underscore D on Twitter. How you doing? I am with you. I'm pretty good. Are you happy uh, to see the sunlight again? Uh, well, I live in the Midwest. We have a lot of sunlight, but it always means it's really cold in the winter, so I don't really give any shits about sunlight. <laughs> well, I did see an interesting article. I might actually link to it about they have noticed the number of accidents in industries goes up the Monday after daylight savings, but I'm like, I do not really? care. Yeah, I'll link to the article. I was wondering if there's like an ops version of that. Um, and there was a tweet about daylight savings is a good test of your automation, which I, I just like, I do not care. There's more sun. So yeah. I'm happy about that. Well, well, for the, well, for episode 38, we have Gene Kim, uh, one of the authors of The Phoenix Project, joining us. It's already been a year since The Phoenix Project has been released. We're going to talk about The Phoenix Project a year in, plus some, some questions I always had about the characters. And Sasha, you and I have talked about this, so we got a chance to ask Gene that. But first up, as we always do, news and views. So first uh, item is ThoughtWorks has open-sourced Go. Their continuous integration and continuous delivery platform. We'll, of course, link to the announcement in the show notes where uh, our friend Jez Humble is delighted <laughs> that ThoughtWorks is releasing Go. I, I have never used Go, mostly because you had to pay for it. So I, I never ha- I worked with a client that used it. Uh, Sasha, did you? I'm, I'm pretty excited. I don't know. I mean, I always wanted to use it, and I never could because every place – I was at one place that I wanted to try it, but they were like, no, we tried their their other tool that ThoughtWorks made, and um, they didn't like it, and so they just didn't even want to try Go, mm-hmm. um, which is too bad because I was really curious to know about it. I downloaded it. I was going to play with it anyway because mm-hmm. – they have, like, you can do it for free, but I never really got around to it. But I love seeing that they're open sourcing it because that makes me happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I, a lot of people, we talk a lot about Jenkins. Jenkins, 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 continuous delivery Jenkins, DevOps Jenkins. I think the space is really ready for uh, some competition. And that's not to say I think Jenkins is bad or uh, any of the developers are bad or anything. It's just competition is always good. And um, I know Yusuf, who's actually in Scotland right now, but he tweeted about downloading Go, and I, I think he had some, some troubles installing it, which is good, because that's always the first, you know, whenever a project gets open source like this. I can remember back in the Bugzilla days, when they open source Bugzilla, that it was like, there was no installer, and you had to, like, read 38 million instructions. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, that'll probably be one of the first stories that they improve, is installation on weird environments that aren't CentOS or Ubuntu or whatever. But, uh, yeah, yeah, it'll be good to see see what happens here. I'm excited um, about that. That should yeah, be interesting. Me too. I love the uh, the domain name too, go.cd. <laughs> yeah, so definitely I, I'm, I'm going to have to grab that too and, and give it a download. Uh, next up we have the uh, Mt. Gox Bitcoin implosion. Uh, this is actually kind of old news by now, but uh, we'll link to the Wired story. And it, it, this is totally not surprising, I think, to anybody who's been following this. The whole bit about, oh, they had no version control. People always make fun of PHP. It wasn't PHP. I don't know. I'm kind of glad that my bank doesn't run stuff in PHP. But from a release engineering DevOpsy context, they had no version control. And uh, they were also storing private keys and things in, in the source code, I think, which we've all dealt with at some point. And I didn't actually read that. I mean, I read about it when um, when it first happened. I read the the giant apology letter that the guy sent out about it because I thought that was interesting. I've actually bought bitcoins and sold them or were they paid with, for things with them with Mt. Gox. No. 
Oh. Nope. Uh, I could tell you who I use, but I hate them, so I don't know. <laughs> That's okay. We don't want your money to be lost if, if they get hacked. You know what's so funny? I don't use my guys. I, I just bought them someplace else. It's actually a San Francisco startup where I use that I use to get my bitcoins, and I hate them. But um, <laughs> and then you have to like I did move them over to someplace. I don't remember what it's called. You have to move it over to like an anonymizer, and then you like send things from mailboxes to mailboxes that are all giant hash codes. And yeah, um, yeah. Well, the one thing I didn't know. Did you know Mount Gox stands for Magic the Gathering? It was like a magic the mm-hmm. trading site, and then it was like, oh, people want to use Bitcoin. And then this came out today. I'll, I'll try to dig up the link for it. Uh, this came out today that hackers are saying, actually, they've done some post-mortem on the blockchain or whatever, and they think that the Mt. Gox people still have their money, and they're just saying they lost it so they can cash out, which looking at the picture of the CEO would not surprise me. He doesn't look very credible. But he doesn't actually look any worse than any random banker, though, that was in the 2008 meltdown so maybe that's saying something anyway though yeah if you're going to run a bitcoin exchange use virgin control that's the lesson please yeah next up we have a throwback to the apple story about the open ssl go to bug uh looks like gnu tls the gnu tls library it's called gnu tls had a kind of quiet check-in this week where they corrected some return codes involving failures and cleanup that look very similar to the Apple bug, which was sort of interesting. We'll link to it. Uh, I don't think it's anything nefarious. Uh, It's just kind of one of those things where it's like they didn't initialize the results variable. They were using go-tos and they jumped to a failure condition instead of a cleanup condition. So... I don't know. I don't know if this is just a result of looking people looking at TLS libraries or what's after that. But uh, did you see the link, Sasha? Not really. Yeah. You know uh, these things. I don't. You just I'm expect so to bad. Work. I expect it to work, and and <laughs> I just you know if it doesn't, people usually take care of it. Well, so, you know. I mean, I shouldn't say stuff like that. I'm supposed to be an authority, and I don't even know what something. But, I mean, I expect stuff to work. When it doesn't, that's cool. But, yeah, I mean, I just have a lot of trouble caring about stuff sometimes. That's one of the... I, I, I agree. I it's hope funny. that I'm validating everybody else out there who feels like I do right now because <laughs> I know that there are a bunch of people like that who just don't say anything. Well, so what's funny to me about that is I feel like that but not about software because I at least understand software enough to sort of look, like, look at that patch and go, oh, that's really bad. I expect mm-hmm. that with hardware. So for me, whenever you find all these like hardware hacks or the, the Apple camera mm-hmm. hack where you can turn on the camera without turning on a light because they reprogrammed the microcontroller, shit like that, like that's where I'm like, <laughs> really, people? Like I just expect my CPU to work and not, you know, have the FDiv bug. That's all right. I want. I hear uh, that. Yeah. But anyway, yes, it'll be interesting to see in the coming months if we see a bunch of reviews of mission-critical code that uses go-tos, maybe looking at what they're doing. Or maybe maybe, uh, maybe they just ran it through the compiler with the unreachable code flag or something. I mean, maybe they learned from that and they, they were able to get some data out of that. That could be. That'd be interesting. Uh, last up tonight, we have uh, a link to Netflix following Facebook's lead and disabling the JavaScript console. There's a little bit of commentary. This is actually a pastebin link, which we'll throw up. But uh, And there's a little bit of commentary in the, the pastebin link. I don't know. It's uh, this is an interesting development. Did you read about this? Have you seen this, Sasha? No, tell me a little bit more about it. Well, basically, it started, I think, with Facebook disabling the JavaScript console. And what they did is they have some JavaScript code that if you try to put JavaScript in somewhere, you get a big 
like Facebook disabled this or whatever. And the reason that the reason I guess they were doing it is because people were telling other people, hey, put this JavaScript code into the JavaScript console, and because it's the console, it's able to access like Facebook cookies and stuff. So mm -hmm. they were able to basically like hijack sessions of people oh, because wow. people, people were stupid. Dumb. Mm -hmm. Right. So what Facebook tried to do is they're like, people are dumb. Let's try to make it so that the console property of the browser or of the window is now defined to be nothing. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a link that explains this. And so there was kind of a discussion about is that good, bad, should they do it? But now Netflix is doing it. And um. so, uh, you know, Facebook is certainly a, a target where people tell people to do, you know, people tell people that aren't, security experts to do things like, hey, you can recover your Facebook password, or hey, you can see a picture of your crush's cats, or whatever, by putting this JavaScript in that, you know, is all UU encoded, so you can't even read it anyway, because people don't encode <laughs> it, right? They play tricks like that, with Facebook is a big target for that, I get that, but is Netflix a big target? Like, what, uh, what I you... would say the level of, they both have a large user base full of inexperienced people. I would, yeah, I would but, say that that's the best way to, like... No, I agree, but but uh, what can you do with a Netflix account? <laughs> Other than, like... I mean, I guess you could up their... I don't even know. Up their plan? Like, see what they watched? I don't... Well, I mean, you could... Can't you do stuff with JavaScript to computers? Like, if you people are stupid enough to start pasting into their Java console, into their JavaScript console, can't you, like, do things that will actually hurt their computers and not just uh, their e cookies? Uh, probably. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, it's a slippery slope, man. Right, but I so I guess the original point, though, was that uh, Facebook did it first because they're a huge social target. I guess either I didn't know Netflix was such a big target or Netflix is just doing it. And it'll be interesting to... I mean, they're one of the big... being preemptive. Yeah, one of the big things of the web, though, is being able to sort of see the source and, and play around with it and, and change it. And there's sort of discussions... Can't you get around that, it? Well, they're talking, actually, about making it so that you can turn this off or may make it so there's a better way to do this. Mm -hmm. There's a link to that too. So we'll link, mm -hmm. link to this. If you do web development and web stuffs with JavaScript, it's it's interesting. Okay. Anyway, uh, Gene Kim, one year of the Phoenix Project. Next up on the ship ship. Welcome back to The Ship Show. I'm your host, Paul Reed. So in any discussion that we've had about DevOps or DevOps transformations, invariably uh, the Phoenix Project comes up. And joining me today is uh, one of the Phoenix Project authors, Gene Kim. Welcome back to The Ship Show, Gene. Oh, man. Delighted to be here. Uh, in fact, uh, it only seems like a couple months since uh, we were on with Jez Humble. Yeah, yeah. Talking about FlowCon. But today I wanted to talk about the Phoenix Project because I was looking at the original publication date, and it was last January, January 10th of 2013. And I realized it's been just over a year, a year of the Phoenix Project, and I wanted to talk with you about that. So tell us what this year has been like with uh, the Phoenix Project. Oh my goodness, yeah, it's been the most fun adventure I've ever been on, and you know, I think you know we're just talking about uh, you know friendships being often a random sequence of repeated interactions, mm -hmm. and, uh, exothermic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I would say that has definitely been one of the uh, the most amazing parts of this adventure is to be a part of you know as many DevOps meetups as I could be and finding DevOps practitioners where we can find them and you know for you and I to be hanging out and being able to share and compare notes about the why and how of 
transforming from not DevOps to DevOps. Well, you know, it's interesting because it seems like the Phoenix Project is one of those water cooler books. It's, you know, it's one of those things where you see it on on Twitter and at you saying DevOps meetups and things like that, where uh, even non-DevOps meetups, you see it coming up because it's, it's something to really rally around. It's these, you know, experiences that everybody seems to have had, but nobody's really had the language to really talk about, you know? I'm curious, it seems to have really uh, resonated, you know, in a way that few IT books have. And I was curious, do you have some stories about, like, going to these DevOps meetups and, and people just, their reactions or, or stories that you've heard that they've said, oh my, did you base Brent or Sarah on so-and-so? Yeah, yeah in fact, you know, uh, one of the things that, we've been uh, very public about is that we modeled the Phoenix Project very much on a book that probably has influenced me most in my professional career, which is a book called The Goal by Dr. Eliyahu Goldratt. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's actually a, uh, so I've read all of his books, and I would recommend two two of his works. One is The Goal, which is credited for changing how a generation of people thought about plant operations. So it was written mm-hmm. in the 1980s. And, you know, it's uh, integrated into almost every mainstream MBA curriculum. So he's done so much in terms of uh, Creating methodologies and thinking process and so forth, but I've you know I've even taken three graduate courses in his body of knowledge, and I would say the one pl- thing I would recommend that sums up everything brilliantly is an audio CD called Beyond the Goal. It's I think seven hours of Goldratt lectures that actually walks through his thirty forty year contribution to the world and actually kind of chronologically goes through the context of all of it, from his journey as a physicist to a manufacturing person to explaining how to accelerate flow in any value stream. But one of the things that uh, he talks about that really resonated with me was the fact that after the goal came out, he would get these endless stream of letters saying, holy cow, it's like you've described our manufacturing plant. I know these people. I know these disasters. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's right. us. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> So, you know, which is one of the reasons why we chose, we followed the structure of the goal so closely for the Phoenix Project. But I guess we never, I was still just delighted beyond words and, and surprised that, you know, the endless string of emails I've gotten saying, holy cow, it's like you're talking about me. And I know these <laughs> people. I just had this meeting last week. And in my right. mind, it just says that we did our homework right and we captured the symptomology with enough fidelity, you know, that actually made people think that this is my life. This is my life, whether we're in dev or ops or test or an agile scrum master or in information security. Yeah, yeah. So I actually wanted to ask like a little bit about the history of how the book came together and how uh, Kevin, uh, I've had a chance to chat with Kevin. He's an awesome guy. I haven't had a chance to meet George, but how the three of you came together to write this this book and talk about this stuff. Walk us through that history and, and how that coalesced. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I've known Kevin Bear since 1999. He's a trip too. He's uh, he, so he's awesome great. to talk to. <laughs> he is, he is uh, one of a kind. And you know, so what? You know, I remember the lunch meeting I had with him. Uh, a fellow colleague at Tripwire said, "You've got." I just, I just ran into someone, and it, he blew my mind. And he reminded <laughs> me a lot about you. Right? And so <laughs> you guys got to get together. And so the next time uh, he came to Portland, uh, we met for lunch, and that was the beginning of. Uh, know, five years of just phenomenal friendship and uh, working collaboration about studying what we, call, what we then called high-performing IT organizations. Mm-hmm. We created a nonprofit together called the IT Process Institute. And uh, uh, George Spafford was uh, in our circle of friends, and we worked together to create the VisibOps Handbook, which came out in 2004, which 
really our goal was to capture and codify how did high-performing operations and security practitioners work together to create great outcomes as opposed to being always at each other's throats. Mm-hmm. So that was but, the community of boundary spanners, just like DevOps is. Yeah, so it sounds like, though, that book was very much sort of more, I don't want to say cookbooky, although it sounds like that, which is great. I, I have some cookbooks that I love. I'm curious, though, you know, it, that's one of those books, though, that you sometimes you knew you might have on the shelf and you might refer to it kind of as a reference bundle sort of thing. It's not a, a parable or a story. How did you come up with the idea like, hey, you know, we should take all these ideas and put them into a story that people can sort of sit down and, and I, you know, because we don't generally identify with cookbooks, right, or, or <laughs> recipes, right? So so how, how did you come up with this idea of, like, hey, we should make this all this stuff into a, a story that you could tell? You, you could almost read it to your kids at the, I can see, it, you know, <laughs> the tired, you know, ops, dad ops reading this book to his children as to rock them to right. sleep. Right, this is why daddy quit today. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right, so when we did the Visible Ops Handbook, one of the things that seemed to resonate with people the most is the this uh, table we would have in front of every chapter, which is like, this is what you might hear, or this is what you might be living through. And there was a narrative description of you know what it felt like when you had horrendous change manager processes, the inability to establish root cause during the incident, uh, when you didn't have a culture of causality. And so you know, it was important for us to get that in there because we were all so influenced by the goal. So after we wrote the Visible Ops Handbook, even during the writing of it, it was our aspiration to someday write the goal but for the IT context. And mm-hmm. so... You know, when the time came, there were, especially this was so coincident to my introduction with the DevOps movement. I mean, it was so clear that DevOps was the solution for the problem that we had seen for over a decade. Mm. Is that it's not just about stable operations environments. It's, our, it's about our ability, to, and it's more than just our ability to control unplanned work and operations. You know, we must facilitate the fast flow of planned work through the entire value stream. And for me, that was a huge missing piece. And I think that was uh, a huge aha moment that really create, I think, the, the sufficient conditions to say we understood the problem sufficiently and right. describe what the solution looked like. Do you think the whole DevOps movement, as it's called, made the Phoenix Project like more obvious in a way that it might not have been if it had been released maybe two or three years ago before, before we had this kind of thing to talk about? Because it seems like DevOps... One of the reasons it popped is because people got to a, there was like a boiling point of, I'm just so tired of this be happening over and over and over again. And if this book had been written in the early 2000s or maybe the late 90s, it might not have had that resonance. Yeah. Do, or, or do you think it's more timeless? Oh, no, 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 no. Timing is everything, right? Um, there's a, one of my favorite books is by Thomas Kuhn. He wrote this book called The Scientific Structure of Revolutions. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, he actually coined the phrase inflection point. Describe whenever you have this huge change in thinking, you know, whether it's Copernican to Newtonian, Newtonian to uh, Einsteinian, you know, it always looks like, you know, there was one person who you know, the Einstein who created the theory of relativity or, you know, Newton who published the three laws. But it turns out that if you open up the, the field of view a little wider, you know, you're gonna find like twenty, thirty people who are all working in the same space. You know, all trying to do the same thing. They had a share, uh, not necessarily a shared goal, but uh, a common goal that they might even be competing with each other. Right. But then there was one seminal moment, right? That uh, you know, it's like uh, uh, the apple drops on the head, or and it all comes together. Right. And then it's like uh, he, the the metaphor he used was like a sublimation, right? You have uh, you know, the instant gases turn into a solid. The mm-hmm. incident happens; it causes instant crystallization. Then uh, bang, 
gas turns into solid, and that's the inflection point. And I think the fact that you had Jez Humble working in continuous delivery, you had Patrick Dubois and Andrew Schaefer uh, working mm-hmm. in agile infrastructure, and you know, I think and, and, the, the, and, the, and companies doing configuration management, oh, you know, absolutely. The, the puppet and chef, and and the rebirth of sort of CF Engine and all those ideas being very front of mind. Absolutely, I think that just happened to come, and then you had cloud in there. But right. I think you know, you also had sort of like the I I can't deal with this anymore moment from IT operations. Enough is enough, and I can't take it anymore. What's aside <laughs> exactly. from the yeah from newsroom or whatever. <laughs> exactly right, and I think all those things created almost like the perfect conditions for the Phoenix project. And I'll, I'll tell you, just personally speaking, my own journey. You know, the, the DevOps problem felt like a moral problem to me for you know, five, six years. In fact, in many ways, it goes back 12 years to my beginning, my journey of studying high performers, because I always felt like operations was over-delegated. It was, always, it was never really viewed as a strategic capability. It was always subordinated. You know, right, and it was always, what are those, what are those j- doing down there? They never get anything right. I mean, right. you know, a lot of times, yeah, because I've lived that as well. <laughs> so I, yeah, I totally can identify. So, you know, the, the Phoenix Project is really meant to tell that tale of what it feels like to be downstream, uh, having to live with technical debt accumulating, and being in a position where we never have the the voice, the seat of the table, the budgetary power to right. reverse that pattern, and, and then positioning DevOps as the answer. Yeah. Well, let, let me ask you that, because I had conversations with a bunch of friends when the book came out that they hadn't heard of it, and so... You know, we were talking about that, and I and I remember one friend I suggested to him, and he's like, "Oh, this sounds great." So he he went and bought the book, and then he started reading it. And I asked him a couple weeks later, you know, "Hey, how'd you enjoy the book?" And he said, "I couldn't, uh, I couldn't get through it." <laughs> and, and well, and here's why, though. He said the first part of it was so visceral and so accurate in terms of his day to day life. He's like, "I can't go home and read that before bedtime because." That's my recharge time. <laughs> you, know, you, were, you were talking about the, the high fidelity of this sort of dysfunction. And he was like, I, I can't read the book. Now, what's interesting to me is I nudged him. I said, okay, you know, the book is in two sections. Get to the second section. It gets better, right? You know, the kind of it gets better for IT. It gets videos, better, right? You know? right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he ended up finishing the book, and he was like, you're totally right. I, you know, I had to power through that first part. But, but I've actually heard that a couple times now where the first part of the book was very difficult for people to read because it was too close to their lives in all of the negative ways of that you know, yeah, characters have to deal with. So my, I, my question was, was it hard to, people saying it's, it's hard to read, was this hard to write? Was it hard to get into the minds of people where, you know, we'll come to Sarah in a moment, but like some of these characters, <laughs> some of these characters were like, oh, I always hated that person and I worked with them. Yeah. Was it hard to like write them? Not really. I mean, yeah. You know, in, in so, what's the source material for this? There's a, a there's a notebook I've been keeping for 15 years. Kind of every time you know you're in a meeting or you hear a story, and you know you just you're like, wow, <laughs> I haven't heard that one before. Or like, yeah. oh my gosh, this this defies belief. It goes in a little in the notebook. <laughs> it goes in the notebook, right? And then um, you know have to put those into characters to tell that story. But you know what's interesting is that a good friend of mine, his name is Charlie Betts. He was one of the lead enterprise architects at Wells Fargo. Uh, he's now at uh, AT&T. Uh, he was my early reviewers for the Phoenix Project, and you know his, his comment to me was like, "I'll never forget it. It was exactly, Gene, this is compelling, but not in the least bit enjoyable. <laughs> I already have a day job. Why in the world would I want to read this?" And and my first reaction after reading this was. Yeah, I think I was like depressed for three days. You know, just uh, like oh my gosh, I hurt my friend. No one's going to want to read this. But 
I sort of had this you know, dawning moment you know, that, like, if I were a musician and I got someone's mirror neurons to fire, then, you know, I'd be pumping my fists with glee, right? Uh, so right. this uh, it became a challenge of modulation. You know, we actually yanked a whole bunch of scenes out in terms of abuses that Bill, the head of IT operations, didn't need to live through. We introduced a laptop for comic relief, right? You know, uh, right, right, right. So this is actually a dulled-down version <laughs> of the early drafts. <laughs> of all of those stories of pain and anguish. Yeah, in fact, uh, you're a delicate flower of a friend. I don't think you would have had the strength to actually survive <laughs> the, the unedited cut. Yeah. <laughs> You'll have to do that. That would be like the outtakes. You'll have to do a, a book that's the abuse outtakes. Oh, that's right. Yeah, like the Tarantino version. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Dude. Extra violent. <laughs> yeah, to that point, I did want to ask you because I have heard this rumor and I was really trying to remember where I had heard it, but I know I'd heard it a couple times from different sources that the original version of the Phoenix Project, like Parts Unlimited, just falls apart and and there is no redemption, and everybody is sad. Is that true? Well, uh, I can say categorically, no, that is not true. <laughs> However, I can, I, can, I can tell you some things I think where what they might be referencing. Okay. Yeah, because clearly we can't drag our hero through such despair and not have him be able to achieve redemption. And Well, the way I originally heard the rumor was that I mean, I, and I guess I, I call it a rumor now because you're telling me, like, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even question it. But, but the, the original story was, like, you had the first part where all the sadness and stuff was happening, and it was supposed to be a warning parable. You know, <laughs> one of these very old-school, like, Aesop's fables sort of things, or, or the Grimm's fairy tales, where it's right. like, what, you know, the children are in the oven at the end of the book, and it's like, well, you should have done that. And so I guess the, the punchline to the story was that one of the editors or something said, and again, you know, I don't know where, the, where I heard this, but said, you know, you can't sell that. You can't sell, like, <laughs> you know, the, right? And so, and so the, the second part, but that's, but that's not true at all. It was a redemption story all along. Right, yeah, in fact, uh, and I would, yeah, because we closely model it after the goal where the hero does save the planet and gets a promotion. Uh, yeah, but yeah, so the original working title for the book was called When IT Fails. Um, oh. And the purpose of it was just to show that when IT fails, you know, the business fails. And so when IT, you know, by corollary, you know, when IT wins, the business wins. Uh, and we wanted to make the case that the business can only win you know, when we create winning conditions for IT, and that's where DevOps comes in. Yeah, but another place where we actually did make a major cut to the book in terms of the structure was, you know, initially, t to make that case, we actually had two protagonists, not only Bill Palmer, our heroic VP of IT operations, but we also had his boss, Steve Masters, the CEO of Parts Unlimited, mm -hmm. uh, because what we wanted to show was that all the problems that the CEO was facing in terms of growing market share, increasing profitability, trying to clear the third-year repeat audit findings, the inability to comply with laws and regulations, all of them required IT in order to achieve them. And, you know, to see that his job was on the line. And well, and, and bigger than that, you point out, too, that uh, the CEO, because I was actually reading through the first few chapters again, and it's full of a little hints like this. There's a bit in there about the, I think Bill makes a comment about he didn't take the CEO very seriously because they switch every couple of years. Yeah, right. So in the CEO story, it's like from his perspective, it's like he needs IT to make sure he's not replaced in the year he has left. Right, exactly. And I think what we wanted to show was that, you know, even in the CEO journey, they're often put in situations of existential jeopardy, mm -hmm. and they are far more reliant on the technology 
function in the business than they would ever think. And ultimately, we said, you know, our market is the CIO and his or her organization, and it's not really our job to give the boss that to give the book to the CEO. That's really the job of whoever owns the IT function. And so that's why we cut out the Steve person as a main character, and that we fold that back into the book is always secondhand. So maybe this rumor came from people who only read the first part of the book, and <laughs> it was so visceral they couldn't they couldn't make it through to the redemption part. Could be. No, no, that's right. Right, there is a second part. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I actually wanted to talk, speaking of the story itself, about some of the characters, some of the famous characters you know. And I'm sure you've had this as well. People, people actually named Brent are probably shaking their head. But I've been at meetups and things where people are like, "Who's a Brent?" and people raise their hands or somebody shouts Brent. Um, I've been a Brent. I think a lot of people have been Brents. Is that based on a – is Brent an amalgam or a, a real character? I know that guy. <laughs> yeah, so um, almost all the characters are amalgams, maybe even sort of stereotypes. Purified uh, forms of the – yeah. Of yeah, the like the pure user persona, right, of that role. But Brent is actually based on Brent Schultz, who is uh, worked with Kevin Bear, and he's now uh, working for the CISO at uh, Semantic. Mm. And uh, there was uh, so much of our reliance on people like Brent in the flow of work. I mean, that shows up in the Phoenix Project uh, in the form of, wait a minute, what do you mean we have to take this five-hour outage because Brent's on an airplane? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean there's nothing we can do? I mean, I think that's so much of part of our common experience. And uh, for whatever reason, I just we were unable to change Brent's name because it was seared into our heads as uh, <laughs> so tightly coupled with the real Brent. Does his business card say Brent, the Brent from the Phoenix Project? You know? <laughs> I would love that. In fact, I'm going to make a card for him just like that. <laughs> there you go. Well, Name, so, Brent. Title, Brent. Exactly. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, so, you know, the one thing, as I was reading Brent, that we don't get to see a lot, he comes into the story, kind of swoops in, saves the day, but there's not a lot of dialogue with him. I mean, a lot of it is very sort of uh, focused on the task at hand. And one of the things that resonated with me when I was reading that character is in the earlier part of my career, you know, my background is build release engineering, and a lot of times build release engineering was that one of the gates in the flow, right, that is sort of slowing down flow because that's what their job function was to get the software out. So they were sort of that last kind of bit of work that had to be done. So in a lot of cases, I was in the position of, of being that we can't ship bits out because Paul's on an airplane. Yeah, where's Brent? Uh, Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Damn it, uh, and, exactly. And so but what's interesting to me is that when I was younger, part of me really and I hate to admit it, but liked being in that position because I had the misguided notion and and I, I was in my early twenties, so that's that's my excuse for it. But that it was some sort of like uh job security or you know what I mean? Yeah. That, and that it was like I liked being sort of in the center of that sort of maelstrom of things going on. And I know a lot of people that have played Brent, and there's this weird, it's actually a very unhealthy situation to be in from the standpoint of, like, you like saving the day, you like swooping in being the superhero, and then there's this weird, like, why won't people leave me alone? And it's like, well, because <laughs> you're, you're the person that comes and saves the day. Did you intend? I mean, because we didn't get to see that side of we didn't get to really talk to Brent in the book and get. Do you you know? Did you write him with he sort of enjoys being in the middle of it, or is he more of the you know why am I being managed in such a way where I'm kind of tossed all around the organization, or is it one of those things where the re it's up to the reader? Yeah, I think it's all of the above. You know, um, I, I, one of the oh, actually one of our mutual friends wrote an interesting blog post about Brent and. 
uh, you know, might even hinted that Brent was being doing this on purpose uh, to preserve, you know, protecting his individual knowledge, preventing it from being tribal knowledge. And I mm-hmm. actually was a little bit surprised by that because I think the intent was that Brent is blameless. Brent is just Brent, and um, you know, it's not the fault of the to use a manufacturing term. It's not a fault of the worker. It's a fault of the process. The you know, it's a fault of the system. Yeah, yeah, the system with the big S that we create. Brent's and uh, when Brent can't go on vacations for years without being woken up at two in the morning and having to live with all the fallout of that, that's a terrible thing. But isn't uh, isn't that funny how we kind of all inject our personal story and our context into the characters in the book? Because yeah. I, I could, what's the saying, something about if you're in constant firefighting mode, you're not a firefighter, you might be an arsonist or something. Yeah, exactly like, you know? right. <laughs> um, th- that sort of, uh, I, I, I immediately saw that. But again, we didn't we didn't get the story through Brent's eyes, so we never got to really have that dialogue. Well, stay tuned. Maybe yeah. there's a project. Uh, in fact, uh, Brent Files. <laughs> in fact, um, one of the projects I'm working on right now is like the DevOps cookbook, and that has to get done first before anything else, because that's meant to be a prescriptive guide of uh, how did Project Unicorn at the end really do all these amazing things, how do they, that really was the embodiment and outcomes of what we in the DevOps community see as the unicorn-like behaviors that Twitter, mm-hmm. Amazon, Facebook, and so forth do. But after that, uh, you know, I was working with, uh, the next project on tap is something that we're calling the unicorn project. Uh, my primary collaborator being uh, Jez Humble, were to retell the Phoenix project um, it's like the red shirts version of Phoenix Project. It's all about people doing the work <laughs> in development. You know, don't beam down. Don't beam down. Don't beam down. Right. <laughs> I love that book, by the way. Um, and describing in more detail why did Phoenix fail? Large batch sizes, high reliance on manual testing. You know. Uh, you know. Brent being Brent. Right. And how did that team? How do we create a small team with high trust? And you know, how does Brent be a part of that team to? Make it so, and and for me, I'm just so excited by that. I shouldn't even be talking about this. It's like so early in the process, but, but it's, it's, I think it's an important story. Yeah, yeah, it's it's the it's the preview for that. <laughs> so one of the, one of the other characters I wanted to ask about because I think we've all run into one of these is Sarah, ah, the Sarah character, and and so and I and I remember I, I we were talking about this before the show. I went and reviewed all of my highlights. Because <laughs> um, I read it on the Kindles, and and some of them are very surprising to me now. I, I will say this: I think I was a little cynical when I first read the book uh-huh. because I didn't I didn't have the perspective. I, I was approaching it from the wrong perspective, and I and I and it, we'll, I'll, we'll get to this when we talk about Eric. You'll see what I mean. <laughs> but Sarah, the Sarah character, we probably and she's the one that sort of all of the highlights I have related to her are, are highlights of things that she said in the book that I've heard as objections and it's one of those it's like a horror movie right it's like don't go in there he, he sarah's in the house and she's gonna <laughs> screw the project up right i mean they're, they're you know that, that you hear and you're like no no that's not the way it works um sarah tell us about sarah like where i mean we all know a sarah but again like how, how did you capture that sort of the call is coming from inside the house this that she um, injects into the story so there are no villains in the book except for Sarah. <laughs> in almost every other case, it is really the system that is the enemy. So it's like more like man versus nature versus right. man versus uh, the villain. But you know, uh, working with a novel coach actually, I mean, you know, 
if the goal is to get the mirror neurons to fire and get people to be vested in uh, our hero's crusade, a villain is actually a very helpful thing to have. And so I, too, have had my Sarah in my life. And, and one of the things, I, I was uncomfortable with Sarah for many reasons. One of them was that she was a woman. In fact, I had a bunch of conversations with Sasha about this uh, in terms of, like, gosh, is this is this going to, like, alienate and make um, our women friends angry? And, you know, she actually gave me a lot of comfort and confidence that, yeah, no, no, it's it's fine. In fact, there's even a draft where I tried switching around the sex of, you know, the CFO became a female, the villain became a male, and just, it didn't quite work. I, I actually, for two two-week sprints, you know, we were, you know, that was actually being messed around with. But yeah, Sarah is the, uh, based on, ironically, a, a, a man, um, <laughs> and, and, and all I can say is he is the worst human being on the planet, and is someone that <laughs> I worked with. And uh, it was actually quite cathartic to sort of uh, pour all the Incredible jackery that happens when you have a Sarah in the organization who can whisper into the CEO, you know, who understands the CEO's dreams and aspirations and fears and misuses it. Right, the worst well, the quintessential, way. quintessential <laughs> bad actor. And we, you know, you make a very good distinction between like people that are existing and working within a system, and they're not bad actors. They're like Brent. Brent is just doing his job, and he's playing the the hand that he's been dealt. Right. <laughs> Um, b- right, but but then you actually have people that are uh, b- bad actors, <laughs> right? And w- w- it's funny. I, I I think of the term sociopath, and and yeah. I don't. I, I actually don't mean that in the clinical sense. We reviewed, and this was Jez pointed me at the Gervais principle, um, and we reviewed it in the last podcast where he talks about sociopaths. Sarah is the quintessential sociopath in that model. Okay. So go go read that from the last podcast. But <laughs> you brought up the CEO, and I, that was the other thing that always comes up, and and I remember because. Because it made such a kind of mark on me when I was reading the book. Chapter 17, chapter 18. And it's funny. I know the chapter numbers and you had to go look it up. It's, <laughs> it's that chapter where the CEO has that come to Jesus moment. And they go do the retreat. And they hug it out. And there's like, you know, it's a group therapy session. And everybody that I've talked to said that's total bull- that would never happen. But you said this was actually based on something that happened, so we're all wrong. Yeah, no, yeah, au contraire. Um, this is actually, in, that aspect of the CEO in Parts Unlimited was actually based on my boss at Tripwire, Jim Johnson, who on his first week on the job, uh, this is in 2004, I think, he brought together you know the leadership team and essentially took us through this day off-site, and one of the most remarkable things is he went through what I now know is called as the Patrick Lencioni vulnerability exercise, where you, you know, if uh, so often in teams, uh, especially when, you know, we've all sort of, uh, you know, undermined each other before, and stabbed each other in the back before to sort of get what the organization needs, <laughs> right? You know, right. we did whatever it takes. It really does undermine trust. And that, boy, talk about the DevOps journey. Right. I think it's very similar. But, you know, this was spanning the R&D and the sales and marketing functions. And, and so he walked us through exactly the same exercise where he told the story of his life and, you know, his uh, failings. And I remember him sort of, uh, you know, tearing up as he was telling the story. And you know, I still, God, I still, I can, I can see this now, right? I can, I remember tears going down my cheeks listening to uh, Jim talk and, you know, furtively looking around the room and seeing that, you know, there are three other people wiping their eyes. Um, and, you know, then, then, what was next? It was our turn to tell our story with no preparation. And, you know, I can say from firsthand experience that 
it changes how you interact with each other. You know, when you are allow yourself to be vulnerable among other peers, and you can hear about their own goals and aspirations and their own hardships. I mean, it 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 changes uh, how we interact with each other. And so I I consider myself so privileged to have gone through something like that, uh, and to have worked for someone who that was just part of his wiring as a leader. It seems very um, self-aware. Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. And it seems like that is a way to sort of bring self-awareness to the organization, you know, a form of it. And, and you know what? I, I think it does something even more, and I think this is how it changed me. I never will be a part of a team where we don't trust each other. I mean, I have, after that experience, I have no tolerance for... And nobody uh, got time for that. Right, exactly. Right? It's like, that's, a, that's an illusion of a team when there is no team. And so uh, I, I would say that was probably, you know, that changed my life. So yeah. uh, it is uh, myth uh, incorrect. It is actually truth. It, it actually happened. Uh, and uh, by the way, I'll send you a link to uh, uh, the, the body of work around Patrick Lanzioni. I, w- I would recommend it for any. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll stuff that in the show notes. That sounds like super interesting, especially if you're charged with uh, managing a dev team or an OS team or, or managing that interaction. That, that oh, right. Be, yeah, yeah. If you're Spock being sent to Nixon, no. Yeah, exactly. China, it might be a part of the toolkit. <laughs> yeah. Actually, one question I, I meant to ask you when we were talking about Sarah, and, and actually this relates to what we were just talking about, this whole idea that working relationships take a lot of time and trust to, to build. How do you suggest... I don't want to spoil it, but Sarah Sarah's end in the book is not <laughs> very, very good for her. How do you suggest dealing with bad actors or individuals who don't want to budge is there we we talked a little bit about the Netflix kind of HR how and Netflix does HR in the Harvard Business Review there's an article about that where they talked about the organization changed and we just had to to get rid of people they said a little nicer than that what are your thoughts on that boy that that is a tough question i don't claim to have the best answer but in my journey i mean i found that the only countermeasure to this is it it is to have a truly strong team that can trust each other, that covers each other's backs. So in the Phoenix Project, Bill built this coalition between dev, test, ops, even information security, and helped show, gain the confidence of management that he understood where their organization needed to go and understood it even in maybe in more detail than they did. And I think... Um, there's this old saw. It's like before I can trust you, I first need to know you care. You know, somehow Bill created that, right? That uh, yeah. gained the confidence of uh, management. And well, it's yeah. like when when you do that well enough, this is how you can outmaneuver someone who can't deliver that with with the substance. And I think that's how they managed to uh, push Sarah further away from the CEO's orbit. It's hard to fake sincerity. And even if you can fake it, it takes a lot of energy. So, <laughs> so, so I mean, you can almost see that with kind of Sarah's character in terms of, you know, it takes a lot of energy to keep whispering in the CEO's ear, and that's energy you could spend doing your job. Oh, yeah. Right, but she's also just evil. <laughs> right, right. Well, so the last – I wanted to ask a couple questions about the last couple of characters in a similar fashion with the sort of come-to-Jesus kind of off-site moment where everybody's sort of talking. You have John, you're the CISO, with a big notebook, the big – <laughs> notebook walking around. You have him sort of take a nosedive because doesn't he? Isn't there a chapter where he he kind of goes to a bar and <laughs> and he calls Bill and it's this super somber. And and by the way, I mean I, I totally identify. There's sometimes I tell the story about why I'm the sober build engineer, and it has to go to like I had a friend ask, are there is there such thing as a sober build engineer? Because he only worked with build engineers with alcohol on their desk at work. <laughs> so I I totally get that, but. 
that was one thing that I mean, and, and your background is in security, so that was one thing where I was like, would it really happen that way? I mean, how did you base this transformation on him having this like personal life breakdown, <laughs> and then he comes back and he it's like he gets it. How how did you? <laughs> you know, um, about that? I actually before I tell you about this, uh, I actually had a co-author of mine, uh, Paul Love. Uh, we wrote the Visible Ops Security book together in 2006. Uh, he's a career-long infosec person, and uh, when I, I asked him for comments, and his, I, I'll never, <laughs> he sent me an email, again, very memorable. He said, I found myself very angry at Eugene, that you could create such a caricature of the infosec practitioner. You were doing a disservice <laughs> for our profession. <laughs> and I, you know, it was like, uh, I'm ashamed of you, Gene. <laughs> and, um, I meant to call him, uh, but actually the next day, uh, he actually beat me too. He said, okay, I get it. I know the reason why I'm so angry. The person you described in the book is me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's, I was John as well. I mean, I think, you know, it's not just InfoSec that's on this moral crusade. I would bet you know a significant portion of DevOps practitioners have once in their career been in a position where we see the better way, and we are trying to push the organization that way, but we're viewed as shrill, hysterical. You know, people run away from us in the hallway. You know, sure, sure, we get but, marginalized. Yeah, but so here's my question though: of all the characters in the book, John, the the InfoSec guy, is the one that takes the hardest, most uh, liver. Uh, damaging yeah. nosedive. And I, I totally sort of. I, I'm just curious why why you had him take the nosedive in that way. I love it because I think you know infosec is often create you know this caricature of the compliance security person. You know is is so common, right? I mean, I uh -huh. you know, I, I, love, I giggle when everyone says, "Oh yeah, I know those characters," and especially the security guy. And then suddenly <laughs> I sort of groan. I'm like, "Oh, oh no!" Well, um, I wonder. I wonder too. Part of it is you can see early on in the character he really believes in the value of of what he's doing, and he really believes that it's important. And he almost d doesn't quite have the sense that everybody else. I mean, he gets that he's not connecting with the other people, but he doesn't. Exactly. It does. He doesn't really understand why, because he's like, "Well, I'm doing the right thing." From his perspective, you know, they, uh, I'm making sure they pass audits and and all of this stuff. And so maybe the reason he takes the nosedive in that way is because it's a really uh, he has to question everything he personally believes. Absolutely. Maybe, and it was that the only way to kind of have him have him take that really rock bottom. Yeah. <laughs> where the protagonist saves him, right? Drives him home. I love, uh, you know, I, I guess two things delight me. One is the fact that I mean, Jez Humble actually. Put it best in his review. He said the real phoenix is John. <laughs> yeah, I just like that. And I think uh, what delights me is that in John's transformation, the post sort of like binge John, you know, is actually <laughs> now taking risks because he so understands the goals of the organization. He's now pushing for control environments that look like it's actually jeopardizing the organization. You know, he wants to cut controls. He wants to take stuff out of scope of the compliance arenas. And I think that is ultimately kind of where. We need our infosec practitioners to live. I mean, uh, and the fact that we kind of went through the journey with him, we now yeah, yeah. we understand that yeah, you know, he's actually being very prudent and ruthless and taking risks that are well, good for the business. I, I've seen that at DevOps days and some other uh, places coming up, like big a reexamination of compliance and the the infosec people getting involved and telling stories of how they they went on their own transformation in their own org, but also how they were able to execute on those needs without sidelining the business. That's right. that's a huge topic recently and it's just started you see it all over the place now. And it's it's interesting to those presentations are always interesting. Because 
audits and stuff are immovable objects. And and you know this, we all kind of dance around how we pass them, but it's one of those things where now you see people talking about, well, let's actually do something that's useful as opposed to dance around. And In fact, absolutely. I've, I've just created a, for the last year, we've been working on a project called the DevOps Audit Defense Toolkit. Um, mm-hmm. And the goal is to really build the tools for both management, I mean DevOps and security, and auditors to be able to show their work, to say, hey, we understand the objectives, we understand the risks, we understand the control objectives we need to put in place, here are the controls, here's how we evidence them. And without doing this, auditors will freak out justifiably when they don't see separation of duty or change approval processes. So it's really incumbent upon management to show the work and show that, hey, we can prevent bad things from happening and we can detect and correct for them. And our goal is to really codify how to do this so that we can elevate the skill level and the level of performance in the DevOps community so we can keep the auditors, so we can elevate the discussions as opposed to arguing about moral issues, about change, approvals, good, bad, <laughs> morally right, wrong, etc. Right, right, right. The last character I wanted to ask about, because he's kind of a, oh, it's a weird character to read, <laughs> uh, is Eric. Yes, The Eric. The, the kind of board, I guess he's like VC and then board, yeah, he's a board candidate. And I was, like I said, I was reviewing my, you know, my Kindle notes, and the quote, you know, there's a quote where he's like, where Eric says, you think IT operations is rocket science compared to manufacturing, what absolute baloney from where I'm sitting, the people in this building, and they're taking a tour of the factory floor, have been far more creative and courageous than anything I've seen come from you IT guys so far. And the note that I put with that is, why was Eric written to be such a jerk? <laughs> um, and, and then the other thing, too, is you see him come in, and, and I know, like, if you actually look at the structure of the book, he's really talking about the three ways, and he's he's kind of the guru teacher, and I, I get that. But I, I kind of felt like at the end of the book, is he going to ask Bill into some sort of glass Willy Wonka elevator that's going to, like, shoot through the roof of the manufacturing plant and fly away like in the movie? You know, it's like, like so wh- where, where did you get the idea for him, and, and why does he have this sort of larger-than-life guru-esque feel to him? You know, we, uh, there's a certain archetype of, you know, like Yoda, Mr. Miyagi, right. know, and so forth. Uh, and, and more specifically, there's a certain character Characteristics that those tropes have, you know, uh, one is they kind of speak in enigmatic, mysterious ways. Uh, they <laughs> know, know the three ways you will, <laughs> right? Exactly. And uh, another part is that uh, they are they don't obey the same sort of physical laws we do in terms rules of rules of the universe. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, they don't need to explain themselves, right? They don't need to. <laughs> uh, you know, that, you know, they are. You know, they don't have time to convince people of the righteousness of the ways. If you're not righteous, right. you know, then you will not you know, join the, the tribe of rebels. But there's a... I guess there, there are two, I think, aspects that were important to me. One is, you know, in the manufacturing world, there are these senseis who uh, have this role. I would say, like, uh, you know, Taichi Ono would probably want to be one of these, you know, where they set the multi-year roadmap for the organization and say, we need to cut cycle... You know, we need to cut inventory by half the next two years. And their job is to coach, and they will rarely tell people what the right way is. And I think there was one aspect of that that we want to capture and put into this character. The second one, you know, that was important to me, there's a person who actually influenced me a lot in my own journey. You know, his name is Dorian Kogis. He has, has a company called the Unified Compliance Framework. This is a really neat guy, but I mean, there's, there's one characteristic I always loved about him, and that it was indifference to outcome. You know, he was so confident about his work and himself that he rarely cared what other people thought. And I, no 
him more than any other person really embodied that character. And I just it was you know, in my mind, Eric would not have to have to convince someone. It wasn't important to him. <laughs> you know, the, you know, he would have that attribute. And I think maybe that could come across as arrogance and disdain and uh, maybe being that Yeah, well, so now that you say that, I, again, we were talking earlier about how I made a bunch of highlights in the, in the Kindle version of the book that when I go back and read them, I'm like, I now look at them a little differently. <laughs> and one of the things that I think is interesting is, you know, that quote that I read, he does sound like he's being a jerk. On the other hand, he is kind of pointing out, you know, a lot of IT organizations don't understand. One of the traditional problems has been they don't understand their place in the business and the world. And so they think running databases in the SAN and email are the most important thing ever. And it's interesting that Eric is pointing out in this quote, it's, it's not the note that I wrote from last year was this guy sounds like a jerk, but he's actually pointing out there are, and you make this point a couple times in the book about, you know, there are people that are, moving widgets around and packing boxes and doing things like that. And a lot of the stuff that we think about in sort of value stream mapping, all that stuff, all of that came from from man, putting cars together. And those people came up with novel solutions to problems. It's not just IT with the problems that they deal with that are the most important. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, so so maybe, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe he's not as jerkish as... On second reading, he, he warms up a little <laughs> bit. So what comes after the Phoenix Project? Uh, you know, once you've reached this this kind of uh, zenith of automation and continuous delivery, you know, is there a sequel here? You know, what what's next for an org that reads this and is like, okay, let's, let's put this together and is successful in doing that? Yeah, I think uh, one of them... Obviously, uh, we've talked a lot about is a DevOps cookbook, um, and so that's and that's the, with... that's the next big book you're working on. That's right, and that will yeah. come out later this year. And uh, if anyone's interested in being a part of the cookbook uh, review process, please let me know. I'd love to have you uh, along and uh, contribute to the journey. And I think this is I'm excited about it because it's an opportunity to really elevate the state of the practice and really capture and codify. You know, how did these unicorns become unicorns? Because every unicorn was once a horse. So. Yeah. That's what I'm spending the majority of my time focused on. And then there's this sort of dream of this uh, a follow-on to the Phoenix Project you know, called the Unicorn Project, which is really intended to show how the more difficult elements of this transformation, which is you know, how do you build a high-trust team and how do we earn the trust of the business where so many enterprise organizations are really command and control, low trust, how does a Brent fit into that value stream and how, how do you build a high trust team among a, a group of people who have maybe spent 10 years at each other's throats and I think that's just a, a really neat journey that I want to I'm just eager to jump into. Yeah so it seems like a, the Phoenix Project is sort of like okay let me convince you that A this journey exists and can happen and is valuable and then the book you're talking about is okay all of those bits that, that I just asked you about that seem like they never would happen in a million years not only did they happen but here's the mechanics, maybe let's pull the curtain back on some of those tougher conversations, it seems like. Yeah. yeah, right. yeah. In fact, um, I mean, one of the valid criticisms of the book is that a lot of magic happened at the end. It's like, <laughs> three months, how did that happen? And, right. you know, I, I think The magic I'll, flying glass elevator. Yeah, exactly. And I, for that, I would say that is a side effect of having chosen to follow the structure of the goal so closely. I mean, you know, page by page. You know, there are five breakthroughs. We allocated the first half for problem exploration. You know, so all of that was really a side effect of the, the form factor dictated by the goal. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think these other books are meant to uh, kind of pull the curtain and show kind of what happened behind the scene. 
So lastly, I wanted to bring up, so because uh, I've seen you speak a few times about this, and it's always interesting when you bring this up because it's such a huge undertaking, uh, and so it's it's always interesting. You, you have so much energy when you talk about this. This is uh, at uh, itrevolution.com. You talk about, and I love the math you do on this, basically talking about there are X million IT workers, some percentage of them, their life, you don't say it this way, but their life effectively sucks. We want to fix that. And here's the business case, the millions of dollars you actually save. Trillions. Uh, the trillions, right, yeah, if you multiply all of that out. So first of all, that's like a huge goal on a huge project, but that's what you're really trying to do with the Phoenix Project, the, the Unicorn Project. That's, that's the dent you're trying to make. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, John Willis, Rajaglupa, I think said it best, right? Had Goldratt written the goal today... It wouldn't be about manufacturing. It would be about the IT value stream because manufacturing's role in the economy in the 80s is what technology is today. Right? That there's no doubt in my mind that the next surge of productivity, the likes of which we have not seen, you know, in 30 years, is going to come from change the way we work, as embodied by DevOps, and, and so, the way that IT supports the business. Oh, right, absolutely, yeah. right. Yeah, as a value creation mechanism of the business. So, yeah, I, I think it's on the one hand sounds audacious and uh, maybe even messianic, and yet uh, I think from a macroeconomic perspective, it's it's obvious, right, that this is a very DevOps is the answer to a very very important business problem. Yeah. Well, hopefully, when you can come back and and join us again to talk about that, maybe in the next few months of the year, tell us how that journey is going and how helping that problem is working out oh absolutely this is always a pleasure uh, thank you so much yeah thanks well and thanks for joining us thank you and looking forward to the next time and we'll be back in a moment welcome back to ship show so far our last item tonight we're going to do a content review we did a review I think last episode too um, I've been reading a lot of random stuff lately and uh, some of it is good and I want to share that stuff I finished up reading um, Command and Control by Eric Schlosser uh, if that name is familiar he wrote Fast Food Nation he was responsible for that book and the movie on which that book was based but Command and Control the full name of the book uh, Command and Control Nuclear Weapons The Damascus Accident and the Illusion of Safety walks through kind of the history of the United States' uh, nuclear program and how nuclear weapons were actually developed back in the 40s and then how they were handled and uh, progressed through the 50s and 60s and who actually had control the civilian control or, or military control. Talked a lot about that. Talked a lot about things that would be very surprising to, I think, a lot of people. Where does this come in with DevOps or any of that? It is certainly disaster porn, if you like that kind of stuff. The Damascus accident is actually a, a detail. It was an accident in uh, Arkansas, I think. And a crew member uh, that was servicing a missile dropped a socket from a wrench down the silo and it was one of these 10,000 to 1 shots where you know they'd done this before but the way that it ricocheted off the side of the missile silo it pierced the skin of a Titan missile and then it started leaking rocket fuel which is this uh, severely corrosive stuff so he tells that story if you saw Fast Food Nation Schlosser relies heavily on characters and he does that here so it's it's actually very re readable but really you know when we look at uh, sort of 
any other things that we do with OpenStack or AWS and our application and the monitoring component and all of these systems, we're building basically complex systems. And I like reading books like this and suggesting books like this to practitioners in our space because it makes this whole concept of complex system theory sort of uh, more real and, and able to discuss. We can actually sort of see parallels in decision-making, and, and this was actually in their response to the Damascus incident. They uh, were very top-down in their control uh, instead of sort of being able to let the people at the site make decisions, uh, and there arguably were disastrous consequences there. So there's actually a lot of incident response post-mortem sort of lessons in there. So if you like complex system theory, nuclear weapons, things like that, stories about how we actually did drop a nuclear bomb on North Carolina and it didn't go Maybe. off. <laughs> yeah. It's a good book, and it's also a very easy read, very accessible to read. Uh, Eric Schlosser does a good job, as he did with Fast Food Nation, in telling that story and weaving sort of the history of, of nuclear weapons or command control with the Damascus incident, with what should we do now, uh, which, of course, the whole issue in, in uh, Ukraine and Russia has brought this sort of up again. Uh, but it's a constant thing that we sort of need to be at least aware of when we're doing our, our DevOps foo. So check that out, Command and Control Nuclear Weapons, The Damascus Accident, and The Illusion of Safety by Eric Schlosser. I want to give a quick shout-out. FlowCon's Call for Papers just went out. PuppetConf Call for Papers is almost ending. It's actually ending the week this podcast goes out. And, of course, we'll put links to uh, DevOps conferences. Also, Velocity New York, end of the month. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, end of the month. Also, I noticed that Java 1 has a tools and configuration track. Oh, I don't know if that's okay. like always something, but I'm actually pondering what I could submit to the Java 1 conference and get accepted, because that would be a new venue for me, and I would think I would enjoy that. Yeah, well, and uh, also, I mean, obviously, uh, looking for new venues, I mean, there's there's a lot of conferences out there, um, and they all have good stuff, but also it's interesting to see, um, you know, FlowCon was a new conference last year. It's interesting to see how these conferences are popping up that are look at, looks at the forest or the elephant from different angles, so that's always good. And and how much of our lives are spent in Java land, Sasha. I know, <laughs> so, right? Uh, yeah, so it's good. They're actually I was teaching Java developers to read their own uh, stack traces. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's funny, actually, Usenix, they're known for their hardcore you know, Unix people. They've got a release engineering conference coming up, and the call for papers for that are open. Um, but that's later this year, and so it's interesting actually to see the the that old joke that's always made about the neckbeards or whatever. But that's becoming a large part of their job too, and and so they they're uh, starting to look at that from a conference perspective, which I think is great. So from San Francisco, this is Paul Reed. When the sun is still up, signing off. From Iowa, Ames, Iowa. This is uh, <laughs> Sasha Bates signing off. It's dark here. We will see you all in a couple of weeks. Bye.